The message this morning is entitled, The Period Between Malachi and Matthew. We just finished the Old Testament Minor Prophets. We're going to bridge the gap between them. We want to begin our study of Matthew by looking at the historical period known as the intertestamental period of 400 years of silence between Malachi, God's last anointed inspired prophet, and um, the Synoptic Gospels. Uh, much information is lacking by people. They don't understand what's going on here. So this morning, uh, to prepare us for Matthew, it's more like a lecture rather than a sermon in itself. Um, many people are obviously uh, oblivious to the events and the re- in relationship to uh, what we find in the Gospels. This will help us. The period is known as a dark period of the Israel's history since there is no inspired prophet speaking at this time or recording under inspiration for 400 years. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar had laid um, siege to Jerusalem, the final one, in 586 B.C. He begins the time of the Gentiles ahead of gold. Cyrus issued the decree for the Jews to return under Zerubbabel, 536 B.C. The second temple was completed after Haggai and Zechariah encouraged the people by 516 B.C., and we just finished those, so they should be fresh in your mind. Now, the second temple um, of Zechariah, um, as, as, as insignificant as it seemed to those people, was looking forward to a better day when the Messiah would come, as we saw. Now, Ezra, the scribe, returned to teach the people of God in uh, 586, uh, the word of God. Remember, they went into captivity because they had not kept God's word. And Nehemiah then followed by the command of Artaxerxes in 445 B.C. to restore and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Um, Malachi closes the Old Testament period in the canon of the Scriptures, 397 B.C., okay? The Scriptures are done. They're sealed, okay? The Jews have the Scriptures, not the Gentiles. They don't make a decision on this. God's final message was repentance in view of their present sin, and in view of the Lord's coming. That's how the Old Testament closes with Malachi, as we saw. These four centuries have been seen in six political periods. Persian, Greek, Egyptian, Syrian, Maccabean, and Roman. Daniel's vision of world empires only recognized Persia, Greece, Rome, because Egypt and Syria were a result of Greece and the Maccabeans were Jewish, not Gentile. Two perspectives of this period will help us understand the transition between the Old and the New Testament. The first one's political, the political perspective we want to look at. And the second is the religious perspective. Now, if you know anything about the old movies of the kings and the Catholic Church in Europe, what is the, 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 the most powerful marriage you can do? Political and religious. Absolute authority. No one can rise up against you. So these two perspectives are very important. The political perspective deals with the um, external state of the world powers. Remember, God gave to Nebuchadnezzar the head of gold, arms of silver, belly of brass, legs of iron, ten toes of iron and clay. 
and the second coming, the stone not made with hands. The whole Gentile empires until the second coming of Jesus Christ. So this period begins with Babylon, but as Babylon has already been over now, Persia, the Persian period goes from 536 to 333 B.C. During this period, Israel tolerated Persian rule, and the high priest had a degree of civil power under Persia. Zerubbabel was the political leader, as we've seen, that spearheaded the first return to repatriate the nation and to rebuild the temple, 536-537, under Cyrus. You get this in the book of Ezra, chapter 1 through 6. And he was born in captivity, remember that we taught, a descendant of uh, King Jehoiachin, sometimes named Jokaniah, and um, his grandson there. And First Chronicles 3 gives you that, and also Second Kings 24. Um, the prophet Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi fit into this period as we saw when we studied them in history, and it provides a great insight into the people and the times that were going on. Now, Zerubbabel returned with 49,897, a little bit under 50,000, a very small remnant compared to the total of captivity. Ezra chapter 2, uh, verse 64 through 65 tells us that. And Ezra led the second return in 80 years after Zerubbabel. So that brings us to about 457 B.C. Uh, again, Ezra chapter 7 to 10 gives you that information. And Ezra, a scribe and priest, returned with only... Uh, about 1,496 people, a scribe and priest in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes to teach the law of Moses. We get this in Ezra chapter 7, 1 and 10. So all of this history is in the books as we look at them and we can put them chronologically. Thirteen years after, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, Nehemiah returned um, 445 B.C. Nehemiah focused on the rebuilding of the walls and the reinstruction of the law of Moses. Again, his book, chapter 1 through 7, is the walls, and then 8 through 13, we have the instruction. Four men then seem to stand out in this post-captivity period. Zerubbabel, the political leader, Joshua the priest, Ezra the scribe, and Nehemiah the layman, who was the king's cupbearer, remember. He prayed unto God that he would let him go. Now, the delegated civil power under Persia began evil rivalries and assassinations for the office of high priest. You see, man is not good. Man is good for nothing. All right? When people say man is good, where are you getting this evidence? What nation? What race? When you compare the years of war to the years of peace, there's so few in the years of peace you're planning for war again. All right? So the, the evidence in our human history defies the proclamation about the human race. All right? Jonathan, the grandson of Eliashib, murdered his own brother Joshua, who was a favorite of the Persian government. Envies, rivalries, and sometimes even worse within families. It's just the way it is. And therefore, Persia, to avenge him, defiled the temple, imposed severe fines, wasted parts of Jerusalem, and persecuted 
the Jews. During this time, the rival worship of Samaria became established, as you know, by um, the Samaritan temple, um, marking a separation between Jew and the Samaritans. Uh, the woman of Samaria was told by Jesus that the Samaritans didn't know what they worshipped. Worship was of the Jews in John 4, 19-22. Because, as you know, the Samaritans resulted from the uh, custom of the Assyrians. Once they took people captive, they would transpopulate them or cross-populate them. Uh, 2 Kings seventeen twenty four through 41 tells us that. So they would come and conquer Pasadena, and they would take people from Pasadena, put them in Ballon Park, Ballon Park, and Duarte, Duarte, and Long Beach. And they would do this for the simple reason to diminish their hope under captivity, to remove them from their families and diminish their resistance, and to dilute their race so they would intermarry in other races and cultures, and pretty soon they would assimilate and disappear as a nation, as a people, as a power. Pretty effective. Zerubbabel and Joshua denied the Samaritans to build the temple with them, if you remember, in Ezra chapter 4, verse 1 through 5, because um, they did not produce, could not produce a pure genealogy, and they really didn't want to help, but they wanted to obstruct and to hinder the work. And Nehemiah had nothing to do with them. So this brings us to the Greek period. The Greek period is 333 to 323 B.C., only a decade. Alexander the Great, he is the belly of brass, okay? Alexander the Great became a leader after his father's assassination. And Daniel unexpectedly saw a vision of a male goat from the west, according to Daniel's prophecy in chapter 8, verse 5. All of these that we're going to point to Daniel, they're prophecies. This hasn't happened yet. Head of gold first, arms and shoulders of silver, Medo-Persia, belly of brass, Greece. The he-goat is identified by Daniel as Alexander the Great without question in chapter 8, verse 21. Again, it's prophecy. It hasn't happened yet. The he-goat crossed the surface of the whole land and the earth without touching the ground, indicating great speed and conquest as a leper with four wings on his back also, Daniel 7, 6. Again, it's prophetic of Alexander and Greece. Then the he-goat had a notable horn between his eyes, and he also is identified as a, with a large horn as symbolic of power and strength. In Daniel 8.8, the national symbol of Greece was a he-goat. A GNC is the goat C. Interesting. It all ties together. Now, Daniel saw the goat, Alexander the Great, approaching the ram with two horns, Medo-Persia, standing beside the river, running with furious power according to Daniel's vision of chapter 8, verse 6. The word furious means burning anger, referring to the hatred towards Persia for invading and degrading Greece the century before. The angel Gabriel interprets the two horns as Medo-Persia in Daniel 8:20. It is not open to personal interpretation. He tells us who they are. So we don't have to guess at these things. Daniel saw Alexander the Great move with rage to defeat Medo-Persia. 
trampled to the ground despite the insurmountable odds against Xerxes. And this is also prophetic in Daniel 8, 7. Alexander the Great transformed the world and politically and culturally in one decade. If you stop and if you examine what Obama did in eight years, you would not, you would have said, that can never happen. Oh, he did. Alexander the Great changed the political and the culture in ten years. He made Greek the unifying language to spread the gospel. He spared Jerusalem as the high priest went out and um, invoked him. And um, he was told that he was the one that he saw in the dream and he gave a pass to Jerusalem. He offered sacrifice to Yahweh and he was told of the prophecies of Daniel and that it was about him. It says, the notable horn gave him full rights to a Greek city. Daniel tells us about that. It's interesting, uh, Paul says in Galatians 4, 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth the Son made of a woman under the law. Fullness of time, the perfect time. One language for the whole world, empire, Greek. The roads for that gospel to be preached. Rome made roads all over the place, and it was a time of peace. When the fullness of time had come. God's always on schedule, right on time. God is working within the country, within the empire, within the rulers. He was back then, he still is today. In spite of what you do or think, it doesn't matter. You don't affect the ultimate purposes of God. Now, though he's right on schedule, and he's still working through empires and speaking to governments and manipulating, doing the thing he is, he never violates your free will. Now, your free will except affects you and other people, but it doesn't affect the ultimate purposes of God. Now, if that troubles you, don't worry about it. He's in control. Okay, what you need to worry about is the decision you make regarding Jesus Christ, because your eternity depends on your decision about Christ while you're living, so that when you die, it becomes permanent about your concern about Jesus Christ. Very, very important. Now, the Jews became sympathetic to Alexander, resulting in the Hellenistic culture and the spirit among the Jews that we will see in the New Testament. In just 12 short years, Alexander conquered the world, Europe. Asia, and Africa. Alexander, the commander of the army, was 21 years old. When he was 33, he sat and he wept because there were no more worlds to conquer. Wow. He died at 32, 33 years old of age from pneumonia because he walked home in the rain after a drunken party in Babylon. Some powerful people do some stupid things. Powerful people, successful people aren't always the wisest. Okay? History proves that very clear. That brings us to the Egyptian period, 323 to 204 B.C. This was the fourfold division of Alexander's kingdom that was prophesied again by Daniel in Daniel 8.8. In place of Alexander, four noble ones came up towards the four winds, Daniel uh, 8, 8, and 22 tells us, and he identifies them as his four generals. But they succeeded him, but not with the original authority and power. It was diluted because it was divided. 
Cassander took Macedonia and Greece. Lysimachus took Thrace and Bithynia, Asia Minor. Seleucus took Syria and Babylon, and Ptolemy took Egypt. Those were the four generals. These rule until 50 A.D. when Rome arose, which brings us into the Maccabean period during that time. Now, the land of Israel became the battleground for Egypt's Ptolemies in Syria's Seleucus. So you have the north and the south. And who's in the middle? The land of Israel. Wars. The king of the south was Ptolemy the first, Soter, and he was strong. Again, this is prophetic and written to us in Daniel 11.5. One of his princes is Seleucus the first, Nicator, and he would arise to be stronger, the king of the north. This entire period centered on two of Hellenistic empires, the south being Egypt, Ptolemy, the north being Syria, Seleucid, with many kings involved during this period, covering approximately 137 years of wars from 312 to about 175 B.C., the marriage of the daughter of Egypt to the king of Syria was attempted to join forces by an allegiance to this intermarriage. And as I mentioned earlier, you remember in the Europe, it was a Catholic Church marriage with a political movement, okay? You solidify absolute power completely with those two. The daughter of King Ptolemy, Philadelphus, um, was Bernice. And she was to marry Antiochus Theos, God, the Seleucid king of the north, in 252 B.C. The agreement was with one condition, that Antiochus had to put away his wife, Laodice. <laughs> Only one problem, he was married. And to, in order to marry Bernice, had to put her away, and her children would not succeed the throne. Now, these kind of arrangements and negotiations still go on today, ladies and gentlemen. There's marriages of convenience, there's political marriages that go on for power, for greed, for control. Nothing new under the sun. Two years after Ptolemy died, Bernice did not retain the power of her authority. So Antiochus restored Laodicea and she murdered him. That's what he gets. And Bernice and her infant son also. Now you sow the wind, you reap the whirlwind, right? During this time, the Old Testament was translated into Greek in Alexandria, Egypt, 225 B.C. So all these things are happening. So when you read capital LXX, the Roman numerals for 50, 10, and 10 is 70, the Septuagint the Greek translation of the Hebrew writings. All this is happening. It brings us to the period of Syria. The Syrian history is 204 to 165 B.C. The land of Israel was divided into five provinces that you will be reading in Matthew's Gospel. Judea, Samaria, Galilee, Perea, and Trachonitis. We'll read those. Antiochus the Great was harsh towards the Jews, as history tells us. Antiochus the Great alone carried on the fight against the king of the south in 217 B.C. 
And once again, Daniel records this for us in Daniel 11, verse 10 and 11. He came with 75,000 soldiers, 6,000 horses, 102 elephants, and Ptolemy, uh, Philopater, defeated Antiochus the Great. Ptolemy lifted in pride, gave himself over to the life of luxury and pleasure. Consequently, his own people revolted against him. And this also is recorded prophetically in Daniel eleven twelve. Thirteen years later, in 203 B.C., Antiochus the Great, having conquered the Parthians and others in the east, accumulated great wealth to finance another campaign against the south in Daniel eleven thirteen, it tells us. So if we study the scripture, there's much that God has given to us prophetically about these time periods, things that go on, that cannot be denied, and they cannot be just explained away. Antiochus' epiphany followed and was much worse, and he's called in that time of his reign, the reign of terror. 175 to 164 B.C. Once again, Daniel tells us of this in Daniel 11, 21 through 35. In 170 B.C., he plundered and desecrated the temple and brought awesome cruelties, horrible ones. Temple sacrifice was abolished, the Holy of Holies rifled, and the furniture carried away. Jewish religion was banned and circumcision at the point of death. All copies of the law were burned or defaced, and many Jews apostatized. In 168 B.C., he sacrificed a pig on the altar, caused the high priest to eat the meat, and then erected a statue of Jupiter Olympus. Now, you think we live in horrible times right now. Oh, no, we, we haven't gotten there yet. Not yet. That brings us to the Maccabean period of 165 to 63 B.C. This period was the most heroic period of Jewish history and holy jealousy for God as a reaction against Antiochus' epiphany and all of his blasphemy. Mathathias, the priest, and his five sons were um, the prominent figures during the Maccabean period. Uh, Judas, Jonathan, Simon, John, and Eleazar. Maccabees means hammer in Hebrew. They called for a willing sacrifice of a godly multitude because of the atrocities against the temple and the Jewish people. Nothing new, is it? It's still today. No different. Through various battles, Jerusalem was recaptured by Judas Maccabeus and the temple rededicated on December 25th, 164 A.D. This is where God did a miraculous thing and provided the oil for the lamps of Hanukkah. This is the Feast of Hanukkah, dedication. John 10, 22 mentions that Jesus was in Jerusalem during this time. It's not a biblical feast. It's a historic feast. Okay? Just like the Feast of Purim, it's a historical feast from the book of Esther, but not a biblical feast. 
And so later the Maccabees were almost defeated, but peace restored um, in the land there, civil, and the priestly authority under Jonathan the high priest around 152 B.C. The Hasmonean line of high priests was murdered in 143 B.C. Simon and his brother followed regaining independence from Syria. John Hyrcanus succeeded then Aristobulus, ending with Herod's family in the support of Rome by 63 B.C. So you see how all this corruption, envy, and jealousy and the uh, power of Rome or whoever's at large and people submit and betray and succumb and they just, they, they, people just look how they can get in position. And uh, it's all to abuse, it's all to reign, it's all to have control, it's all to just do what they want. Nothing new. That brings us to the Roman period of 63 B.C. onward. The Judean independence ended when the Roman general Pompey subjugated Jerusalem and Judea became a province of the Roman Empire. Antipater the Idumean was appointed procurator of Judah or Judea by Caesar Augustus, I mean Julius Caesar, I'm sorry, in 47 B.C., and then Antipater appointed Herod, his son, as governor of Galilee, being 15 years old. Now, when, you, when we go through the Gospel of Matthew, we'll point out the different Herods. There are a lot of different Herods, okay? Uh, but they were all bad news. Um, when war broke between Pompey and Caesar, um, it broke out. Herod fled to petition for the crown of Judea and was appointed king of the Jews about 40 B.C. Now, he married the granddaughter of the Hasmonean, John Arachanus of the priestly line, and appointed her brother Aristobulus high priest. Again, you have the marriages, you have the compromise, you have all this kind of stuff that goes on. But at the same time this is going on, God's on the throne. Okay, we have to understand this. God fulfills his schedule, but he doesn't force people to do good or evil. But he holds people responsible for the evil or the good they do. Is that clear? Because if God forces you or someone else to do the evil, then God's ultimately responsible for the evil. The Bible doesn't teach that. All right? Now, Herod was an Edomian, a descendant of Esau, brother of Jacob, a type of the flesh murdering anyone he felt threatened by and was an enemy of God's people. They had a saying about Herod that it was much safer to be Herod's pig than Herod's son because the two words are similar in sounding. Um, he slew three of his wife's brothers, Antigonus, Aristobulus, and Hierarchus. Then he murdered his wife, Marianne, his mother-in-law, and his own sons, Aristobulus and Alexander. He massacred the infants from two years on down, as you know, when the Magi's came and said, where's the king of the Jews in Matthew 2.16? He murdered them. He was a crazy man. Power. Now, um, 
in, in Europe, um, Europe is gone. In Europe, both especially Finland, about there not being, uh, you know, people, babies with Down syndrome and this and that. You know why? Because they do tests and they abort them. They kill them before they're born. That's what they do. All the statistics even here in America and Los Angeles, crime has gone down. No, it hasn't. You've decriminalized the law. You've made it not a crime. Do you know that there can virtually be a rape of a woman and if it's not considered in the area of violence, it's not a crime today, thanks to Jerry Brown? So figures don't lie, but liars sure can't figure. Okay? It's interesting. So people, the government creates the problem, then comes in to fix the problem, but it's only to control people. That's all it is. Nothing new under the sun. In the um, academic world, is a Trojan horse to allow all of this and to indoctrinate all this. The Trojan horse to America, the universities and public school education, ladies and gentlemen, there is no education. There's indoctrination. That's all that goes on. Now, the political perspective shows us how we get to the New Testament times as we finish the Minor Prophets with Malachi. Now you can see the stuff where it's going, okay? Even though God doesn't have a prophet speaking, no revelation, 400 years of silence, God's on the throne. He's not biting his nails. And man continues doing what he's always done, live for himself and try to get the biggest piece of the pie. Wow. So this was a political perspective revealing the um, external state of the world powers. Now, the religious perspective deals with the internal state of God's people. Let, let's begin with David to captivity. Uh, David was um, the sweet psalmist of Israel, as you know, whom God had chosen to be king. He loved God was not allowed to build a temple because he was a man of war and a man of blood. Solomon, his son, epitomized the worship of Yahweh, wisdom and riches by the blessings of God until he disobeyed God and his wives that he married led him his heart away from God into idolatry, even building idolatrous temples, the Mount of Olives and everything else. The kingdom became divided into the northern kingdom and southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was called Israel, ten tribes, under Jeroboam, the southern kingdom, two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, under the son of Solomon, Rehoboam. The calf worship was established at Dan, and in the years to come, Jezebel expanded its idolatry with the worship of Baal and other uh, idols. By 722 B.C., the northern kingdom went into captivity by Assyria. From 606 to 586, three sieges. Now the southern kingdom didn't pay attention to what God did to the north. Is sieged by Nebuchadnezzar under three sieges. 606, 596, 586. And Jerusalem is leveled, the temples wiped out, and the 70 years of captivity begins. One of the main reasons is they violated the Sabbath law of Second Chronicles 36.21. Every seventh year, the land was to rest, trusting God. They didn't do that. 
So seven times seven. Uh, If you add up the whole uh, Sabbath, it comes up to 70 years. So God would punish them for disobeying God's word, not trusting them completely, plus all the other sinful lifestyle they had. Now remember, during this time, you have Ezekiel who is in Babylon. Uh, He's the prophet. He's telling the people to marry, build houses, kick back. You're there for 70 years. While he's there in Babylon, you have Jeremiah over in Jerusalem, and he's saying, listen, don't even fight Babylon, just, just give up. And they're accusing Jeremiah of being a traitor. They throw him in jail. And, and he's writing to Ezekiel and the people, hey, just get married. Ezekiel's saying that. And, and the false prophets are, are, are coming against Jeremiah. Ezekiel's preaching for them to stay. The false prophets are saying, shut Jeremiah's mouth. Listen, the majority's always wrong. They deviate from God's word. All right? That's the way it is. And now remember that Ezekiel was a priestly of the priestly line. He never got to officiate the priesthood. But God did give him a virtual reality tour through the temple. He became a prophet of God. And as Ezekiel was out with the people, who was in the palace? Daniel. God always has his people, ladies and gentlemen. God's not up there biting his nails saying, Gabe, what should I do? I'm kind of stumped here. God's in control without controlling people. Something we don't understand. Daniel was given great favor by God. He went all the way to the Medo-Persian Empire. That's God's man. Then we have the return after captivity then. The remnant of 50,000 returned with Zerubbabel in 536 B.C. according to Scripture. Again, Second Chronicles 36, Jeremiah 29, and many other portions. And they returned because of their faith in God and His Scriptures. It was prophetic that God would bring them back. They returned because they believe in the Messiah's hope. But not everybody was sold out, as we'll see, um, because though they had come back to the land, their hearts had not come back to the people. Not everybody. Ezra arrived 80 years later, as we said, to expound the word of God, to teach the word of God, because there's always a relationship with your blessing, your peace, and how you experience life to your understanding of God's word and applying God's word. That's why we... Do nothing but teach the Word of God here. This is kind of a different study because I'm trying to give you some historical aspect to connect the dots. But once we start Matthew next week, we will take a section of Scripture. We will wring that sucker out as much as we can and you will understand what that means and how it applies. Okay? That's what we do. And it's always your decision towards God's Word, whether you believe it's God's Word, whether you believe it's applicable to your life or not, that you will receive the good or the consequences of it. Each of us make that decision. And so, after Ezra and Nehemiah followed 445, 13 years after Ezra rebuilding the walls, the law became the standard, expounding the word of God. They're moving back in the right direction. The prophets Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi prophesied during the post-captivity, as we've seen, denouncing sin, complacency, and not returning to the Lord. They had come back to the land, but not the Lord. 
Sometimes people backslide. How far they backslide, where they go back in the world and then they come back, they come back to church, but their heart's still not with the Lord. Okay? Because you walk into a garage doesn't make you a car. Because, you know, you walk into a church building doesn't make you part of the church. Because a rat's in the cookie jar doesn't make them a cookie. So be careful what you stick in your mouth. You must make that a personal commitment to the Lord by your relationship through His Word, understanding, walking, obeying. As the voice of the Lord ceased through the prophets, the synagogues became the place where the scribes expounded, translated, and explained the scriptures. The only thing is the synagogues are found nowhere in scripture prior to the captivity of Babylon. The word appears, synagogue, in Psalm 74, 8, in the Old King James translation. It means solemn feasts or set seasons, but the association there in Psalm 74, 8 is the place where they observe the feast, not synagogue, as in the New Testament. The word appears 200 times in the Old Testament, and there Psalm 74, 8 is the only place again that's translated synagogue in the Old King James. There is no evidence in Ezra or Nehemiah of any full development of synagogues, but the background, the roots, certainly are there as we look at the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah as they focus on the Word of God. James said the synagogue had been around for many generations in Acts 15, 21. Therefore, what began as a regular study of the scriptures as a passion to keep the law gradually developed into a legalistic, religious, and traditional externalism. And that always happens. The law became interpreted and supplemented by oral law, which was to protect the law, but instead became the law itself. So here's the law, and the law is holy, but we broke the law, and that's why we went to captivity. So we're going to build this oral tradition and interpretations around the law so it'll keep us from moving in and breaking the law. Well, what happens with time is, if the law is holy, but now this fence protects us from breaking the law, the fence must be holier. So you begin to teach the fence rather than the law. And that's what we'll see as we get into the Gospels, you see? Many had lost their Hebrew language, remember. That's why Nehemiah and others had to interpret for them. The Mishnah was the oral law, originated in what is called Mishnashim, commentaries on the Old Testament law. And the legal exegesis, or the exegesis, the expounding of it, interpreting of it, conformed to the Pentateuch called the Shemata, the heard and received. So as you proclaim the word of God, the teaching with understanding, you receive it to apply it. The Haggadah was the moral, practical, and fanciful explanation of all scriptures. 
About the end of the second century, it was committed to writing by Rabbi Jehuda into the Talmud. The Talmud contained two things. The Mishnah, the oral law under six main subjects, agriculture, festivals, women, civil and criminal, sacred, and purification. So God makes it simple. Man comes along and makes it complicated. God gives you two chapters for creation. If man had to write it, it would be 200 volumes. That's the way we are. Okay? The way you know you're a PhD, a scholar, you write a book that no one understands. That's how you know you've arrived. The Gemara means that which is learned. Commentaries on the Mishnah. <laughs> so you have all these things being added. There was the Babylonian Gemara from the time of exile and the longer 66 printed volumes. There was the Jerusalem Gemara from 200 to 400 AD, the shorter 12 printed volumes. You can better understand when Jesus said, you have heard that it has been said, but I say to you on the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it's been said, these authorities, the Talmud, the Gemaras, and all these guys, but I say to you, boom, shortened to the point, the greatest authority. Interesting that the office of the church or the offices are taken from the synagogue. The bishop, episcopoi, deacons, diaconoin, uh, elders, presbyteros, but never is the word priest mentioned for that was temple worship. In the synagogue, it was for instruction, not for sacrifice. And you would never teach a woman the word of God in the Jewish culture. And think about it, the Jewish culture was the highest view of women. Okay? We'll get into that when we go through Matthew. Now, there were rulers of council of elders, um, Mark 5.22, Acts 13.5 or 15. They were called the legate. They recited prayers. The deacons, they took up alms. The chazan called them uh, named by appointed uh, readers, and they stood by them to see to make sure that they pronounced the words properly. And um, he cared also for the scriptural roles because there were roles that both they didn't have books, but they rolled up um, scrolls. They blew the trumpets, announced approaching Sabbath. They lit the lamps. They superintended the furnitures and applied the scourging for discipline. And they're also called ministers in Luke four twenty. These are all offices that come from the synagogue. And as you read 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, you get some of these things. But don't mistake in the synagogue and the church. The church is completely different. Okay? Now, some of the sects that we'll run across, the scribes in the Old Testament, uh, and men to write. They said in order or count, they were recorders and transcribers or secretaries. Ezra was a ready scribe, it tells us in the book of Ezra. Uh, the New Testament scribes were also called lawyers. Uh, 
and were a new breed who had uh, evolved as guardians of the law, providing interpretation and meaning. Now you look to what's happened to our nation, our culture. You've got a new breed of interpreters for law and morality, turning it upside down. A new vocabulary that redefined it. You don't lie anymore. You misspeak. Oh, okay. Um, you're not fat, but you're just challenged with wise. <laughs> you're not sure you're vertically challenged. You know, all these little funky little names that these people just think they're so wise. They're corrupt. That's what they are. Their original aim as lawyers was inscribed to make every person responsible to keep the law. The intent was pure at the beginning, but it resulted in legalistic traditional hypocrisy, caring for the tradition more than the law. Mark 7, 7 through 8. And that's usually the way things happen. Jesus pronounces the woes upon the Pharisees of Christ in Matthew 23. The priests were the officials of ceremony, the temple duties, though a priest could also be a scribe. David had divided the priesthood as members of the 24 courses in 1 Chronicles 24. Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, was doing his duty in Luke 1, 5 when Gabriel announced him that his prayers had been heard and that his wife um, Elizabeth, who was barren, was going to bear a child. They were to name him John, who was a cousin of Jesus, six months older than him. He would be the forerunner of Jesus Christ, the voice in the wilderness. So while all this stuff is going on, God's at work. A schedule is going on. People are still people. The Pharisees were the ecclesiastical religionists and ritualists of the day. The word means separated ones. They were rooted in Ezra, but now it was self-righteousness. There's this legitimate sanctification, setting yourself apart as you come out of the world. But not because you're self-righteous. If you separate yourself because you think you're better, that's different. Listen, the boat belongs in the water. It's when the water gets in the boat, the boat gets in trouble. Okay? Very, very important. And so, they were spiritual successors of the uh, Chasidims, the uh, pious ones who 30 to 40 years earlier had bonded together to preserve the Jewish faith against Antiochus Epiphany. Again, it began good, but within time, things get tweaked. The Sadducees then were the aristocracy. Jesus um, uh, mentions them. And they were motivated by political ambition and um, prestige and power. They um, rejected the oral law, denied the resurrection, angels and spirit. Acts 23, 8 and many other passages. Now, how can you have the scribes and the Sadducees and Pharisees together in such different beliefs? They were part of the Sanhedrin. Some believed in angels, some did not. Wow. Annas and Caiaphas were both Sadducees the high priest. Horrible. That's like a, a science teacher not teaching science but the hypothesis in religion of evolution. Contradicts what he's to be teaching. Same thing with the Pharisees. Sadducees. 
The Herodians were a political party looking to Herod as one Jewish hope of independence. He is an Idumean type of the flesh. The zealots were the Jewish nationalists that avowed to fight against anyone who would try to bring power over the Jews. Simon the Canaanite was a zealot, one of the apostles of Jesus Christ in Matthew 10.4. They were opposed to taxation, and in AD 6 at Galilee, they led a little rebellion. They became lawless in the land, and um, they were in existence until 70 AD. Now, the Sanhedrin was the Jewish Supreme Court. The origins unknown, but is believed to have arisen from the Greek period of 333 on. 71 members, one high priest, 24 priests, 23 scribes, and 24 elders operated daily between the morning and the evening and had 23 member quorum. 39 had a to declare a vote of guilty for death cases. And so all these things are the things that come into the New Testament during the days of Jesus. Now, there's also what's called the Apographa that contains 14 books in the Old Testament written during the first uh, to the third century before the birth of Jesus Christ. The authors are unknown and were added to the Septuagint, Apographal books. Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew. So when they translated into the Greek, they added them to them. Josephus rejected them as a whole, and the Jews did also. Now, if anybody's going to accept any books during that 400 years, it would have to be the Jew. The Jew rejected it. The Catholic Church accepts it because of the, the Septuagint, but the Catholic Church doesn't exist until 312. So you've got a problem of math, 500 years. All right? 450 to 500 years. They're not inspired books. Not at all. When the Latin Vulgate was translated from the Greek again, the apocryphal books carried over into the Latin Vulgate. And so the Roman Catholic Church and the, Catholic, and the Council of Trent in A.D. 1546 attempted to stop the Protestant movement, declared these books canonical. They are not. You have apocalyptic literature and writings. This type of literature was what they call, big old word, pseudepigraphic. That means they wrote that book and they put Jeremiah, the name of an, a, a prophet in the past, okay? The literature is characterized by judgment, the coming of God, pessimism, giving very, very little hope. By the way, we have the, 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 the book of Revelation, Apocalypse, okay, which gives us great hope. If it wasn't for Jesus coming back to this earth, this earth would destroy itself. The second coming of Jesus Christ is the greatest hope for this world. The greatest hope. Matthew then opens up with the genealogy of Jesus Christ, linking him to Abraham after the seed of David to announce the virgin birth of Messiah, the king of the Jews in chapter 1. So you have these dots, you connect them, and it brings us right into the New Testament. Now, even though this is not a normal sermon as I usually do, but it's necessary to connect the dots, you have enough information to know that there's men that God has spoken through as prophets. You have enough evidence of scriptures 
are prophetically accurate in an incredible amount of odds. You see the things that were prophesied. You see the things that have been fulfilled. You see the love of God to send the Son. And that's the message for you. That God loves you so much that He sent His only begotten Son that whoever believes in should not perish but have everlasting life. And that you make a decision where you spend eternity, not God. And that that decision is based on whether you believe Jesus is God who became man, lived on this earth at a set time, died for you, paid the price for your sins, rose from the dead, and sits at the right hand of the Father, and he's coming back again. Or whether you believe there's a lot of baloney. Okay? If you say Jesus is just a good He's a prophet, he's a good teacher, but you don't believe he's the Messiah, son of God, God himself, you, you get an F on the course. You will never be in heaven. You must agree with God, not with me, with God. That's the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Much of the church today is giving up the gospel. In the 60s, the social gospel was preached. God is dead. Then God, by His grace, poured out a great revival through the Jesus people. Now we're back to moving away from God. People go through cycles. God's mercy, God's love. If I was God, I would smoke us. God is so good to us. So it depends on you. Where do you want to spend eternity? Heaven or hell? It all depends upon what you believe about Jesus Christ. Don't get this one wrong. Eternity is on the line. Father, we thank you for your grace and love, your goodness. We love you. We thank you. We pray for just those that are listening in the radio, internet, and here, Lord. You would deal with their hearts. Right now, as you're listening, I don't know where you're coming from. You might be somewhere out there in the world. Germany, South America, Mexico, wherever, or the internet, or here. If you don't know Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, God has brought you to hear the gospel, to make a decision about your sin. He's called you to repent that you might accept Christ Jesus. He might forgive you, give you a new heart and eternal life. But that comes from your own decision. He will not decide it for yourself. He does not force you to go to heaven. You have all the right to go to hell, but you don't have to go there. If you want to accept Jesus Christ right now, this is your prayer to Him as your Lord and Savior. He's going to forgive you. He's going to save you right now. This is your prayer to Him. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.